Welcome to Tea Fascination with Andy and Nick. On this week's episode, we discuss the most expensive tea in the world and the London Tea Auction. Have you ever just sat and wondered, what is the most expensive tea in the world and how much does it cost per cup? Well, we're going to answer those questions and quite a few more in today's podcast as we discuss the world's most expensive tea. Andy, tell us a little bit more. Sure. The most expensive tea was about $2,000 a cup. So just to kind of backtrack to kind of think about like, wow, how did it get to be that high? In 1998, one tea reached $900,000 per kilogram in auction. So the tea is so rare that when it reaches the open market, it commands a hefty price. And if you think about $900 per kilogram, that's $900 a gram. And if the average cup of tea is 2.2 grams, that makes this particular cup of tea exactly $1,980 a cup. That's quite a bit more expensive than your average like chai tea at it, Starbucks, I'd say. I would say, although it's expensive at Starbucks. Yeah, too. it's yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, no. Exactly. So it's an expensive cup of tea, and I think that you know when we look at that, one of the questions to be asked is like, what is so special about this tea that makes it expensive? And then like the second question after that has to be like, well, then how do the prices get set for tea? And um, before we tell you the name of the world's most expensive tea, we kind of want to talk about where this tea comes from because that definitely plays into the cost of why it's so expensive. So the tea comes from China, from Wujian Providence, and it's specifically the Wuyi region. And the name of the tea is Da Hung Pao. It's better known as Red Robe Tea. So the reason this tea is so expensive and rare is because it's harvested from plants that have grown on the mountain region for more than 300 years. And it was discovered in the Ming Dynasty. To date, there are like six of the original plants left. Um, wow. Only six. Just I six. know, just six. That's so you mad. can imagine that, you know, to get leaves from these six plants takes quite it's quite rare. I would imagine that's quite a delicate process. It is a delicate process. I mean, they're sitting there picking them by hand from yes. these, like, you know, old trees that have a couple leaves. So um, the original plants that produce the dung hao pao, um, those plants really stopped producing in 2005, and then the government decreed in 2007 that they forbid picking any more leaves from these bushes, you know. And that also brings into how rare and valuable this tea now is. Because if you can't even pick from the leaves, you know, you understand that there's no longer any harvesting coming from these original six plants left. Um, there's a legend that goes with the tea, and it says that their mother of the emperor of the, in the Ming, uh, the mother of a Ming emperor was sick, and there were bushes four bushes to be exact, and they took tea from these four bushes and um, on Wuyi Rock, and this tea cured her. And so the emperor was so grateful to these plants, he sent red robes to be draped on them. So hence, big red robe is really what the tea is called now. 
I would fully expect, right, for a, a cup of tea that could cost nearly $2,000 to consume, right, I, w- I would want there to be a legend attached to it. Like this, something as worthy. I, it's a worthy legend, and it's, and, it's, and, it's a, and it's such a regal name. It fits with the whole idea of something that's that dear and that expensive. It does. I mean, it does. And they're, um, you know, they say that it t- the tea tastes good, and, um, you know, I think that that's a plus, right? I mean, if yeah. you paid this much and it tasted bad, that'd be a plus. It's an oolong, and this region's known for oolongs. Okay. And so oolongs have, um, I think, by nature, always commanded a higher price than other tea, too. So, I mean, that can be taken into account. Um, so, one of the stories about this tea, which is interesting, is it involves President Nixon They say that when he visited China in 1972, Chairman Mao gave him 200 grams of this big red robe tea. And he was kind of insulted. He's like, 200 grams? Like, what are you giving me like this for? And he kind of poo-pooed it. However, they explained to him that the annual yield is only 400 grams. So it was joked that they literally gave him half of the country since they gave him half the yield of this tea. And this tea has traditionally been known to go to heads of state and things like that, which, again, adds to its rarity. I will have to say that, you know, looking back on the Internet, researching this story, is it true? Is it not true? We don't know. But really, it is said that they looked through the records and they never found this tea to be recorded with the gifts. And technically... Heads of state, especially when you're in the U.S. government, you have to record every gift that you're given by any foreign government. That's right. Right. So we don't know really if this happened or not, but... Maybe the tea lived up to its name and its billing and it was so good that maybe it didn't make it back. That's true. Maybe maybe they drank the tea because it's a long trip to China and back. You right. Stay up on that plane. Exactly. So maybe by the time Air Force One got back to U.S. soil, all the tea had been consumed and, and didn't true. require to have to be logged. I find that an entire 1972 trip that President Nixon made to China. Yeah. It's fascinating. It coined yeah. its own phrase, its own turn of phrase. You know, only Nixon could go to China. Yeah. And 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 you know, when you attach a story like this to it, it just I don't know. It just adds. Another depth of interest to it I for me. It's it, very cool. It adds some mystique to the tea. For Definite sure. mystique, yeah. Um, and the so this tea by itself, you know, from the original plants commands a high price. However, and this is like when I think we can kind of mention auctions. Um, it's kind of hard to really know nowadays. Are you really buying real big red robe tea, or is it adulterated? So basically what happened is that, you know, they see that the plants are getting old, they're not producing as much, you know, they took cuttings from their original bushes and they planted in the area. And um, so there is a distinguish made between the real regular original bushes and then all of these cuttings. And um, so they said that the taste is so similar, sometimes it's hard to differentiate. Was an original, was it from a cutting? Um, However, they did do 40,000 acres, which is oh, wow. a lot. So you can yeah. see how, you know, if is it how close it is to the original bush would matter and things like that. 
And with China, if it comes from the Wuyi region, it can be called Big Red Road. So now we're talking about 40,000 acres, and you know, so you kind of don't know what you're getting. How close was it from the original? So that kind of sets a problem up um, in terms of knowing what you're getting, getting what you're paid for. Mm. And they also started to kind of mix other teas into it because it was so rare in the beginning. So you have to kind of mix other teas into it. And so you never know, are you getting, is it pure or not? And that's always been an issue um, in terms of knowing what you're getting. China is one that is one of the ones that it's really hard to know what you're getting. They don't have a true standardized grading system and transparency in the market is not exactly what you would call top notch. Right, right, reason. right. I mean, sure. So, um, you know, so I think though, because of this, there have been auctions set in place that have been really try, trying to let people know that their tea that they're getting is actually the tea they're paying for and things like that. Um, one of the ways that this was done is through the tea auctions. And the London tea auction began in 19, uh, 1679, and it lasted until 1998. And they say that it kind of ended primarily, the reasons are the telephone and internet started to eclipse the need for the London tea auction. You could sure. trade online. Um, however, while the London tea auction was alive and well, they still had auctions going on at the origin Sri Lanka India and Africa okay initially the tea auctions were really important because they would get the tea from wherever India they would send it up to London to be sold but you didn't know was the tea did the tea have rats was the tea you know tainted you so they would have tea tasters they would taste the tea then rate the tea sure then basically the cost would be determined and you would know what chest you're buying from based on the quality based on the quality determined that's at the right. auction that's right got it and got so it. you would know what you're getting i mean that's not as much a problem now either right because we get it direct it comes from india sure. to america we don't have to go through london anymore exactly and and also transportation time that's right has been shortened it's not no, on a ship nothing's taken yeah that's nothing's right. taking an east india ship all the way that's you know right. around the horn of you know africa and everything else gotcha that's right so now the process is streamlined clearly because of that and the internet and there still are professional tea tasters that rate the teas. Okay. So you do know what you're getting in terms of what they say the tea is worth. And um, all of their feedback, the tea tastings and the samplings, it's published on the Tea Boards India's auction website. So you kind of know what you're getting, you know, assuming that, you know, it is as it was tasted. Um, and that's, I think, interesting, no, knowing that, you know, that can happen. However, as a small buyer, it really can also be frustrating dealing with the auctions because the auctions were really set up for larger purchases. Absolutely. So Lipton, in bulk. And that's right, in Absolutely. bulk. In bulk. So they're trying to kind of work on that now so smaller people can go in and buy via the auction. I think that's something that they do need to work on. There's also small gardens that have been, have been cut out of the auction, but they're starting to come in too. And as small producers and small buyers can get in, I really think that you know it's gonna be a really great 
thing for the industry in terms of being able to buy direct, which right now you have to go through a brokerage house if you want to buy because of how the system's set up. Okay. So, um, but I think that something interesting about the London auctions too is that they say it was done by the candle. So the auctions were held quarterly and tea was sold by the candle. So they would light a candle and um, at the beginning of the sale and um, when an inch of the candle had burnt, the hammer would fall. Like that's as much time as you could to go back and forth with pricing. Oh, wow. And that was like really cool. And it was called Buy the Candle, and, wow. um, and, which I think was super interesting. I, I had no idea that's how they did it, but that's how they did it for a very long time. I mean, there's so many questions that go into that because you would think that maybe a high quality candle would burn slower. And That's maybe it would right. add more time, like, and you wonder, does somebody sneak in a, you know, a, a more cheaply made candle to shorten the sale time? I mean, there, there's so many variables that can be introduced through something like that. Yeah. It's just, it's so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and now you think, like, on the internet, it's done in a second, you know, sure. via then yeah. it was, like, all yelling and screaming. That um, There is a site, the London Auction has a site, they have a... Um, a historical site and you can go in and actually hear a live auction for tea which is wow. you know, all you hear is a lot of shouting in my opinion <laughs> but it's interesting nonetheless um, I did want to um, introduce somebody his name is Mike Bunston and he's OBE he was the chairman of the Tea Brokers Association at the time when the London Tea Auction closed okay. and he's also chaired the International Tea Committee for 20 years and he was appointed honorary tea ambassador for Ceylon Tea in London in 2014. And I think it will be interesting to hear him and what he has to say in the auction since he lived and breathed them for so many years. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and let, let's go ahead and listen to a bit of that now. The auction started, uh, the East India Company started auctions in East India House back in the um, 17th, it would be the late 17th century. Um, it, I think it was sold by candle. They don't ask me what that is exactly. I don't know how, yeah. quite how it works. Basically, you light a candle and at a certain stage, the, the deal is struck. Um, and then in, in, um, in, in, in 1735, I think it was, the, the auction room in the commercial uh, sale rooms in Mincing Lane, which is very much the centre of the, or was the centre of the tea trade, um, was formed. And that's when the auctions as we know them today started. And, and a great deal of tea was sold there. Now, now why, why London? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. One is, of course, we, uh, in those days, owned most of the plantations in India and, and Ceylon, where, where the bulk of the tea came from. Um, and also, we were the biggest consumers of tea, and it was a big re-export trade. And thirdly, and the thing which I think is probably the most important thing, and why the London auction was so important, was that the UK buyers wanted to know when they were buying tea that it was going to be sound and it was going to be what they thought they were buying. And of course, these, these teas had all come break bulk in, in hulls of ships, uh, some very rough voyages. When they opened the hulls, often um, the tea was all over the place. The tea chests were broken. So it all had to be taken, sorted, all the damaged tea taken away, put in uh, <coughs> saleable form and then put in the warehouses. So the buyers knew when they bought that, they took the sample from the chest in the warehouse and that was what they were getting. Now, imagine in those days, if you bought tea from uh, for, for, direct from India or, or, or Ceylon, it would have taken ages for it to get here. And then they'd have faced the same problem. When it arrived, half the tea would have probably been useless. So we, we can, the logic was totally there. And this is why it was so successful for such a long time. 
And then anyway, the, 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 the a man called J.J. Bunting built this incredible uh, building, Plantation House, in 1935 to house the new auction auditorium. And in fact, it was the center for the, all commodities. The rubber exchange were there, the coffee, the sugar, the cocoa, you name it. And But the tea auction was the grand thing on the top two floors of, of, of Plantation House was this vast auditorium. Um, if you go onto the London Tea History site online, you can see pictures of it. Mm -hmm. it, it was, and I started in the tea trade there in 1959 as a very junior, as a trainee. So I was there for 10 years and it was the most incredible place. And I found the whole thing was so fascinating in, uh, in, 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 in the London tea industry because there, at that time, the teas were all coming into London and into the warehouses. And I would go around the inspectors and look at all the teas. I'd go out to the auctions and take prices and do all the things and do all the batches, everything that a, a young um, trainee would do. And it just enthused me. And I thought, this is, this is the thing for me. I, I love it. I love every minute of it. Um, but of course, one of the most important things when you decide you want to go into the tea trade is, do you have a palate? Can, can you taste tea? Now, you can't taste tea, but if you've got a palate where you can discern various tastes, then you've got something that they can train. So once they'd established that, which thank God in my case they did, um, it's a lot of training from many years. Um, they used to say in those days it took five to seven years to be a really competent tea taster because you had to experience all the different seasonal changes, all the things that can happen to tea. I mean, the thing about tea is it's quite unique, unlike cocoa or coffee. It's, it, it's, it's, an, it's, um, it's a crop that is manufactured. In other words, when you take the leaf off the bush within 24 hours, you end up with a manufactured made tea and that's it. And the only other thing that will happen to it after that is that it may go into a blend if it's not sold uh, as it is, which is very popular today, selling single estate teas. So um, it's a lot of things can go wrong along the way uh, on all of this, because if the plucking isn't good, it's, it's, you know, they've got to be certain plucking standards. Two and a bud is the, is the favoured one. Mm -hmm. um, it's then got to be uh, withered and that's got to be done properly. It's then got to be processed in all the ways that it does. Whether it's green tea, it's, it's stopped at oxidisation. Obviously, if it's black mm -hmm. tea, it oxidise. And then it goes in the dryer. But at every stage, something can go wrong. And so to have an expert in the tea factory used to be called tea makers in those days. I don't think they call them that now. Um, these guys were incredible. They knew everything there was to know about this tea. But of course, at the end of the day, they were not, they, in a way, they couldn't see the wood for the trees. They were responsible for their own tea factory and they made have um, discourse with local factories, but that's as far as it went. Whereas if you were sending your tea to London, you were competing against all the teas and our knowledge of all the teas would help them because we would always taste teas every week. Um, the, the tea estates that we represented in London, as we were the brokers looking after the seller and selling by auction to the buyers, the packers, the blenders, call right. it what you like. So, so am I going too fast? You was yeah, just all I just right. wanted to stop and ask a question about this process because I think this is really important and people don't understand. So yeah. when you, before you would buy the tea, you would taste the tea. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, in our case, before we sold the tea, but the buyers likewise. Yes, what would happen was when the tea came into the in, into the warehouses, uh, we would, of course, this is all happening ahead. I mean, it's absolutely all automatic. I mean, at the height of the season, we were auctioning with because India was a was which was more of a seasonal crop was was the biggest. Uh, Forty percent of all the tea in UK when I joined in 1959 was from India, 40 percent from Ceylon and the other 20 percent came from various other places, mainly Africa, which was coming up quite fast mm -hmm. now of course today kenya accounts for 60 percent 
India 5% and Sri Lanka 1%. It's just changed so much yeah. over the years. But anyway, so the teas came in and then they would, we would then produce a catalogue of the teas we were offering for the week, two weeks ahead, say. Um, and the buyers would get those catalogues and they would then indent for the samples of the teas that they were interested in. These are all done at a central place called the Tea Clearing House. Um, and what they did, if, if, if you were selling a lot of tea in those days, it could be a lot of 40, 20 chests, 40 chests, 60 chests. They were the normal standard size. So if you take a 60 chest one, a sample was taken from every chest and placed on a big, it was usually a tea chest panel, but something of that ilk. And so you'd have 60 little samples and the inspectors would look at it to see that the bulking was regular. Mm -hmm. Then it would all be put together. That would then be the sale sample. What happened then that the buyers were, were given buying samples out of that lot and they would then take them away and taste them and put their estimated value on, by which time the brokers will have tasted them and put our valuation on. So they knew what our valuation range was for these teas and roughly what level we would be prepared to sell at. But of course, um, it's only a guide at that stage, naturally, because you, until you get into the auctioneer's rostrum and see which way the market's going, whether it's going up or going down, um, it, it's just a judgment. And of course, but you have got those values uh, on which to assess the market for that week. And the other good thing about the tea, the tea auctions, whether wherever they are, is that they're totally transparent. There's been a lot of, um, shall I say, dodgy dealing with other commodities. The coffee trade was notorious, and, and many others, I think, where the poor growers ended up with virtually nothing compared with the price it had been sold at. Now, in tea, that doesn't work that way because the tea's in auction. The auction price is on the hammer that day. It is known, it is publicised, everybody knows what the price of that tea estate for that day was so there can be no fiddling at all it's as transparent as you can get and so the buyers uh, the sellers would know pretty well or the growers what they were going to what they were going to receive of course the teas selling in london uh, were mainly uh, large companies teas but of course late latterly as the smallholders started to develop particularly in kenya mm -hmm. the kenya tea development authority which is a massive success story it really is so yeah. many people have tried to emulate it and, and not manage and they've had their problems along the way but it is still an, a great success i mean they've got 61 processing factories throughout kenya and that was every year when i used to go to kenya I used to go all around kenya to to visit them all it was it was it was wonderful it was a delight to see them all um so so the rest is still commercial um in caricho you've got the finlay group and you've got the unit unilever although they're selling this and mm -hmm. uh, eastern uh, up in nandy you've got eastern produce and other smaller growers but 61 tea factories producing nearly 60 percent of the kenya crop is all smallholders people with an acre of tea or half a hectare or whatever Family farms are called. They may grow other crops as well, but they would have tea. And all the family would get to and pluck the tea, and it would all be sent to an area where it was checked, weighed, and then it went into the processing factory. It was processed. They would get a certain amount of money for their green leaf initially. And then at the end of the year, if it had been a good year, there'd be a bonus, which would be paid out to the growers. So, it, again, a very, very good system. And uh, I think the fact that it's been so successful is proof of the pudding, as they say, in the eating. Mm -hmm. So that's a rough synopsis of how, how it happened. But of course, as I say, you know, auctions were going in week in, week out. Uh, there were, I think we in London, we only had three breaks in the year for Christmas, Easter and, and uh, August bank holiday. Every other week there was an auction and anything from 60 to 80,000 chests of tea were auctioned. It's a massive amount of tea. 
Uh, we were by far the biggest consumer at that stage. And as I say, we were biggest re-export. I mean, certainly all the tea that America consumed basically was brought through the London auction. Um, but of course, obviously, as, as time's gone on, it's changed. The thing that really changed the London auction was the advent of palletization and containerization, which stopped all this worry about the tea arriving damaged. It was put into a container at the factory door in most cases, but certainly it would have been palletized after, uh, containerized after it had been bought in Mombasa auction or Colombo auction or Calcutta or Jakarta or wherever. And um, so the buyers knew they were going to get sound tea, which was the whole point of our, our raison d'etre originally to make sure that that happened. But of course, obviously costs go up and for a, for, for, for a producer to send his tea to London and know that it's going to be quite a few weeks before it's sold and he's going to get his money back. Um, today, everybody wants, you know, the famous just in time and look where that's getting us at the moment. Um, you know, where a buyer could, uh, Mombasa was a classic case, buy his tea in Mombasa auction, have it on a ship and it could arrive in Felixstowe within, within a, virtually within a week. Um, so, you know, the tea was get, arriving fresher and fresher, which of course is another good thing. But if it's packed properly, that, that's not a, necessarily an issue. If it's packed properly and stored properly, it'll keep for a long time. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, you know, speed and freshness. And from a blender's point of view, it's a dream because he's got tea coming in all the time from Kenya. Doesn't vary very much. Good, high quality tea. Unlike the Eastern countries, India, definite season. No tea really produced between November and March. Um, Sri Lanka, different, very different seasons where the quality varies like mad. Mm -hmm. And China, as I say, is, is a totally another, a, a different ball game. They have such a variety of teas. I, I, I was very lucky. I was chairman of the International Tea Committee for 20 years. And they, we got them to join us in 2005 because they'd been rather out in the cold up to then. And the only way you could buy tea in China in those days was to go to the spring or the autumn fairs. You'd either go yourself or you'd have an agent to buy teas for you for the year. That's all changed now. It's nearly all done directly. They've got agents everywhere. And I mean, the big buyers do still go out to, to China to see and, and, and buy their requirements. But we are talking about such a variety of teas. There are hundreds and hundreds of different teas in China. Mm -hmm. Whereas Kenya, you've basically got black, good black tea, you know. But even they now are realizing that they've got to look at ways of, of, of producing speciality. So they're going they into green tea, tea as a... Yeah. Oh, they have now the purple tea, like that's an, an what, other... You, oh, yes. Well, all these wonderful names they have. I yeah. mean, they, they love it all, the Chinese. They, I, to be honest, they ham it up incredibly. And it's fascinating. And I found on my trips, you know, they're wonderful people. They're very friendly. But one thing they don't want to do is to ever be thought that uh, they're not totally in charge of the situation. So you, you and, and when you're dealing through an interpreter, you, um, you, you ask a question and if you get an answer, which isn't always, you have no idea it's the answer that, to the question you, you've given. So it's very difficult. I mean, you'd go around a tea factory and they'd extol the virtues of the spring crop. And of course, all these wonderful teas but of course the tea bush grows all the year round. So you'd say to them, well, what happens to all the tea that's growing the rest of the year? you don't hear and then you go around a tea factory and see all this tea piled in the corner what we used to call uh, in the old days when we could get hold of it if, if we wanted to buy it for, for clients um straight black china tea and it's um it's pretty ordinary and it was always bought as a price producer but so you've got two total sections you've got all that tea which we don't know a lot about to be honest 
and then you've got all these incredibly fine teas which all have wonderful stories and sell at vast amounts of money as which is what we yeah. will come on to i'm sure that's that's right and um in terms of like do you remember the most expensive tea that you ever sold or tasted and then which tea it was well, yes, I mean, it, when I was an auctioneer, I, I, I was very much involved because although we were the leading salon brokers when I joined the firm as a trainee, I think uh, the, our firm realised that one, you couldn't have all your eggs in one basket and two, that things were changing. And uh, there are all sorts of rumours about what salon might do. Um, but two of my partners were very involved with Africa, one particularly with Malawi, one with Kenya and Uganda. And so when I when I became a full member of the, of the firm, as a bright young thing, if you like, I was immediately put onto Africa. So I spent 43 years um, traveling to Africa. I actually was seconded to Uganda for 18 months in the 1966-67 to run the marketing of the tier states there. Uganda had only just become independent uh, a few years and uh, the Commonwealth Development Corporation, the World Bank, when cleared in, keen to invest a lot of money in tea they thought would be because tea grew well there but there wasn't a lot of it so they expanded it planted out tea built factories and the the man who was in charge of the marketing was <coughs> leaving he was going to um, to, Ke to kenya and they wanted to uh, they had a very bright uganda they wanted to, uh, to 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 take over but of course he had to be trained and they needed somebody to run it meanwhile so i was sent out to run it for Eight, for uh, 18 months uh, it would be a year and then he would be trained in London by our company and then he'd come back and work with me and then he'd take over and I'd come back to London that was the theory and, and it worked pretty well um, but it was a fascinating experience for me because that was the first time I'd ever seen a tea plantation you know and there but it wasn't just like so many people today go on a little trip a little educational trip I mean I was in at the deep end I was suddenly responsible for marketing tea from seven different tea factories uh, there was also an instant tea factory and there were other things as well that I got involved in had to order fertilizer supplies and god knows what so I was I was um swinging from the hip I think you'd say you know <laughs> playing it by ear but it worked and it was a wonderful education for me and uh I did them a favor and I certainly did myself a great favor. And after the end, uh, when it ended, I, my wife, I got married meanwhile and my wife was spent a the, 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 the year with me there, which was wonderful. And uh, at the end of it, they said, look, we'd like you to go to Kenya for three weeks and have a bit of a holiday, but at the same time, visit all our clients there. So we did that, that was, that was incredible. Uh, we, 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 we left Kampala on the train and those days a lovely trip train with um, restaurant cars and all the, Waiters had white gloves and the works. I mean, it was doesn't even. I don't think the railway even exists anymore. And um, it was twenty-four hours down to Nairobi. You come down through the the Great Rift Valley, and I remember at about five o'clock in the morning, um, you looked out, and there was the whole of the Rift Valley ahead of you. Uh, it was just an incredible experience, and I fell in love with Kenya then, and I've loved it ever since. Barone teas are artisan teas, made and mixed in small batches. Their proprietary formulas are designed for holistic wellness without sacrificing taste, so you can get all the benefits of the herbs and full-leaf tea leaves along with amazing flavors. Flavors like Southern Pecan, Peach Berry, Magnolia, and Peach Blossoms bring Southern scents home to your mug. Their organic blends are packaged in biodegradable pyramid tea bags, so you know you are getting the finest herbs and teas out there without any extra chemicals. 
Their herbal formulas are designed to aid you on many different levels, from top to bottom and from inside to outside. Their black and green teas are made from whole leaf teas, never powdered, and that allows for more antioxidants and goodness in each cup. They believe the act of sipping a beautiful cup of tea can be just as healing as the tea itself. So go visit Barone Teas and try them out for yourself. Start your mornings with a cup of Barone Tea and help make your day a bit more magical. Tea Fascination's theme music is No Clouds, performed by Ketza. Tea Fascination is recorded, mixed, and edited by Duncross Media. For all your digital marketing needs, go to www.duncrossmedia.com. With nearly a decade's experience in digital marketing, Duncross Media is an effective and affordable option for all your digital marketing needs.